Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're enormously privileged to have as our guest Professor Patrick Mason, who has authored the just-published book titled Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. Dr. Mason is the chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University, and he's also the chair of the Religion Department at that institution. If you ever read an article related to Mormonism in almost any major newspaper across the nation, chances are you'll see Patrick quoted on the subject. He's a prolific scholar and a writer, with several volumes scheduled to be published within the next year. And on top of all that, he serves as the current chair of Dialogue Foundation. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider visiting us online at dialoguejournal.com and subscribing to the print or electronic version of Dialogue, the premier scholarly journal of Mormon thought. The next voice you'll hear will be the renowned LDS sociologist Armand Moss introducing Patrick at a gathering of the Miller-Eccles study group. So tonight I would uh, like to introduce to you Professor Patrick Q. Mason, who has, among other distinctions, an unusual middle initial. (laughs) But that, of course, is only a um, humorous talking point. Maybe not very humorous, actually, Patrick. (laughs) Patrick is the, uh, holds the chair, uh, Howard W. Hunter Chair Mormon Studies at uh, the Claremont Graduate University. And he is Associate Professor and Chairman of the Religion Department, also at uh, Claremont Graduate University. He's a a very prolific author. It's really kind of intimidating when I think about what I had produced by the time I was his age. It, It just seems that he's always got something going. He's always publishing something. There are two uh, important books actually in print, one called The Mormon Menace, Violence and Anti-Mormonism in the uh, Postbellum South, published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. Coming out of a conference that we had at Claremont in 2013 is a collection of essays entitled Directions for Mormon Studies in the 21st Century, which is a a collection of really powerful and unusual essays that uh, will be published by University of Utah Press this spring. Also underway is is a book that he's doing again with Pulsifer called Renouncing War and Proclaiming Peace. So other than that, he's not doing much. Uh, But... uh, that's really a pretty remarkable uh, publication record for a young man who has, I think, had his doctoral degree barely 10 years. And that's, that's pretty good. Patrick is very entrepreneurial. He it really gets after things and has all kinds of great ideas about things that would be great to research. Uh, he's constantly thinking about major new books that that he would like to do, and one that he's been thinking about and striving 
for her a long time is a biography of Ezra Taft Benson. It would be an interpre interpretive biography, of course. It isn't always easy, especially for a church president uh, of such recent vintage, for you to get all the material you might want from the church archives on, uh, on his career. But Patrick's working on that, and so that's a uh, project he has lurking in the background. Well, you'll be relieved to know that I'm reluctant to go any further taking up Patrick's time, but I do want to uh, tell you how tremendously impressed I have been with Patrick for a very long time. I've known him at least 10 years. We, uh, we met originally while we were both active on the Dialogue Board of Directors, and uh, where he was very effective. He's now the president of that board, where he will be far more effective, I think. So I've known him a long time. There is nobody in the whole world of academia, Mormon academia, Mormonism academia anyway, whom I respect uh, more than I do Patrick. He's a, a, a wonderful young scholar, a, a bright light that you're going to be hearing from again and again during the coming years. Um, so after that uh, long harangue, unaccustomed as I am to brevity, um, <laughs> I would like to give you Patrick Mason. Patrick? Thanks to all of you for, for coming and uh, spending a Saturday night. I know you've got all got great things to do, so I appreciate you coming and spending a couple hours here. So I, I want to start by asking a, a question and uh, get a, a show of hands. How many of you here know somebody who right now is struggling with their, their faith in the, the LDS church, has questions, doubts, maybe has left the church? How, how many of you, just by a show of hands? Okay. <laughs> You know, every time I ask that question, it's, it's the same response. I mean, this, this is one of the, the challenges that we face now in the LDS Church in the 21st century. And, and I think one of the challenges to our individual and collective discipleship as a group is, is how we're going to get through this together. And uh, so that's what I'm going to talk to you a little bit about tonight. Normally, in, in my day job as a, as, as a professor... Mormon studies as an academic field, especially at a secular university like Claremont, generally I, I, I treat the study of Mormonism uh, the same way we would treat any other field of academic study. Uh, we, we, we look at Mormonism as objectively as we can, and, and we study it alongside all the other religions, and, and when I'm in the classroom, I'm there as a professor, not as, a, as an active and, and practicing member of the church. And it's, it's not Sunday school, it's not seminary or institute, we're, we're, we're there to, to train professional scholars of religion. And so, so we do it uh, with particular standards of, of rigor and, and critical analysis, uh, we do that. And so normally when I'm working as a historian, as a religion scholar, uh, that's the mode that I'm in. I'm going to be in a little bit different mode tonight, uh, because the, the book that I've written is in a little bit different mode. You know that somebody's kind of nerdy when I've got a whole bunch of books I'm, work, I'm writing at work, and then, and then um, for my hobby, I decided to write another <laughs> book. Uh, and, and so this, this book was really kind of a labor of, of love. I didn't have to write it, and, and, uh, but I chose to write it because I felt uh, sort of compelled to after talking to a lot of people, hearing a lot of stories that people have, uh, frankly, a lot of the pain 
that, uh, that's being experienced uh, by, by many people across the church right now. So, so I thought, you know, if, if there was something I could do to, to pitch in. You know, it's, it's not easy today in the 21st century to be a person of faith, uh, whether we're talking about Mormonism or Catholicism or, or, or Islam or anything else. It, it is not easy. We live in a secular age, especially those of us who are here in the kind of in, in, in Europe, in North America, um, in, in other places. And uh, scholars have said, uh, one, one way I like to think about it is that in, in the pre-modern world, in, in traditional societies uh, that our ancestors lived in, we were held on to uh, by religion. Uh, that the religion sort of shaped your entire life from, from cradle to grave. <laughs> the politics, economics, everything was shaped by religion. And in, in fact, uh, in, in, many, in many cultures and uh, in many times, there's no separate word for religion because religion just sort of suffuses this, this idea of the, of the otherworldly, the divine. It suffuses every aspect of, of your existence. And so this idea of religion as a separate sphere of human behavior and activity uh, that's separate from politics and economics and social life and all these other kinds of this is actually a very modern notion. began roughly in the 16th or 17th century. And, and so what it means now is that religion doesn't hold on to us in the same way that it, did for, that it did for our ancestors. Instead, we have to hold on to religion. That, that to be a person of faith in the 21st century is a conscious choice. And, and even if it's not a struggle for you, even if you're by, by natural predilection or, or, or by a kind of a radical conversion experience or something like that, even if being religious isn't particularly difficult for you, you know that it's just one option among many. You know, you've, you've got friends, family members, co-workers, and so forth who choose either other options from the religious menu or choose not to go to the religious cafeteria at all, right? And many of them live very productive, wholesome, happy lives with, without religion. And so we know, even, even for those of us for whom religion shapes the way that we think about the world and live in the world, we know that it's only one option among many. And so in this secular age that we live in, faith and religious commitment becomes a choice. And for many people, it's a very difficult choice. Uh, in some ways, the hardest choice uh, that, that they make. And so I think that together, as we move forward in the 21st century, as, as Latter-day Saints, and, and I'll be speaking tonight mostly about our, our own LDS community, but many of the same uh, challenges are faced by people in other religious communities as well. But in our own religious community, I think we've got to really think hard about what kind of religion we want to hold on to. Uh, of course, the doctrines of the church are, are, are set and, and well-established and, uh, and have been revealed and, and are taught by, by the church leaders and by the scriptures. But what I'm talking about in terms of what kind of religion we want to have is the quality of the relationships that we have with one another within the church. One of the fears that I have, frankly, uh, for, for the modern church is what I call the juvenilization of Mormonism, or the <coughs> EFYification of, of Mormonism. Or sometimes I fear that it's the, the gospel according to internet memes. Um, you know, these very pretty pictures with like one sentence or one phrase. And it's kind of like the whole gospel can, re, can be reduced to a picture of a sunset and half a verse of scripture, right? <laughs> I've, there's nothing wrong with sunsets. I really like sunsets, right? And, and there's also nothing wrong with EFY. EFY is terrific if you're a teenager, right? But I don't see too many te teenagers in this room, right? And, and our religion has to have the kind of maturity 
and complexity and sophistication and nuance that, that, that our lives have as adults. Our religion has to grow up with us. And I think sometimes, not always, and, and, and uh, I don't want to make too, too much of a blanket statement, but at times, sometimes our religious discourse within the church sort of gets frozen at about the level that we experienced as a kind of advanced teenager. And there are some, some reasons for the kinds of discourse that we have within the three-hour block, especially I think it's, a, um, it's an act of uh, collective d- discipleship for us to minister unto the least of these within the three-hour block. But the three-hour block shouldn't exhaust the limits of our religiosity. And when we send our kids to college... And they've got, and they go to biology class, and they've got complicated and sophisticated and nuanced questions about the natural world. They go to their biology teacher or their biology professor, and he can give them complicated and sophisticated and nuanced answers to their questions. He can give them adult questions to adult or adult answers to adult questions. If we can't do that within our religion, then people are going to say are, are going to check out, right? They're going to say that I'm not getting as good of answers, as smart of answers, as thoughtful of answers in my church and in my religion as I am in my biology class or in my philosophy class or in my in, 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 at law school. And so I think we collectively need to decide, do we want uh, and, and are we going to strive for, are we going to do the hard work to, to have a, a religion that can, uh, that, that can accomplish the goals and speak to people at all levels? We are so good with our children. Uh, the, the, the primary program is, is amazing. We are so good with our youth. I mean, there are actually national studies that, that, that show how remarkable our youth programs are in terms of uh, the, the kind of religious formation of our teenagers. Our Mormon teenagers know more about religion. Uh, do I need to? Am I shouting in your face? I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Oh, because of the, the microphone. Mormon teenagers know more about religion in general, not just their own religion, but religion in general, than anybody. Uh, they're about tied with Jews and atheists. Atheist kids actually know a lot about religion, uh, it, it, it turns out. Um, but, uh, and, and on levels of participation and all kinds of things, our, our teenagers are off the charts uh, compared to, to, to other teenagers. I mean, these are, um, these are national studies that have shown this. But the question is, can we develop a kind of faith that is just as good and just as robust for those of us from age 18 to 80 plus? At times, I think we do wonderfully with this. At, at times, I think maybe uh, we struggle. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, why, frankly, we, we see some return missionaries come home and they're bored. And, uh, uh, and, and, and they struggle and, and some other things. So, so can we develop the, the type of religion that people want to offer to? And so this, this really contributed to, to why I wanted to, to, to write this book. Um, not to lecture the church in, in, in any way, and, and, and I, you know, who, who am I? But to, but to say, can we have, and, and maybe to model some, some other kinds of conversation uh, with, within the church. You know, you all raised your hand and you said, you know, you know somebody who's struggling or, or, or has, has doubts and, and so forth. And I wanted to write a book that could speak to, to, to those people who had questions, who had doubts. And I wanted to frame some conversations in ways that might be helpful to them. But I also, at the same time, wanted to write a book to their parents and to their bishops and to their visiting teachers and, and to their friends and the people who love them, who, who don't have the same struggles, but who struggle to know how to relate to this, to this person, to their friend, their daughter, person in their ward who has these kinds of questions. 
And so I wanted to write a book that wasn't just for the doubters or wasn't just for the kind of mainstream church, but, but was for the whole body of Christ. Because I think that's, that's, that's the challenge that, that God gives us, is can we do this as an entire body of Christ? Can we move forward without relegating certain parts of the body and saying, well, you're the appendix, we can do without you? Because uh, I think the body of Christ, it, it's a perfect body that, where the appendix has already been removed. All the parts, all the parts matter. And, and all the parts are, are really important. And so this, is, this, this really is an exercise in sort of what I would call kind of pastoral theology. I had a, a woman uh, this, this week email me. Uh, we were exchanging messages. Uh, she had just read the book, and uh, she struggles. She's somebody who struggles. And she, she sent me a message and talked about how much the book helped her and, and so forth. But then she said, now if I could just get my parents to read it, they are so passive-aggressive about stop-questioning that I often leave family group spaces online. And then they all complain about how easily offended I am. So here's somebody, I mean, she's actually trying. I mean, in, in our conversation back and forth, she's trying, and, and she's going to church, and she's doing what she can to hang on to, but it's hard for her. It's really hard for her. I'm glad that in some ways this book seems to have helped in some way. But for her, this has complicated her relationships with her family. And, and that's why I see this isn't just about relationships to the church, right? It isn't just about spiritual. It's, it's because Mormonism is a family religion, right? And, and so when your spiritual relationships are complicated, when your church relationships are complicated, then that does complicate your relationship to family oftentimes as well. And, and a lot of people have felt alienated from their families. It's really hard to go to Thanksgiving dinner, right? And, and, and these kinds of things. So is there a way? Is there a way that... that that we can have better conversations? Is there a way that this woman and her parents can have productive, constructive conversations about their different journeys of faith, about the, their different relationship to the church? I certainly hope so. I think it's part of the call of discipleship. You know, part of the baptismal covenant is to mourn with those who mourn. There's a lot of people who are mourning, who are suffering, who are in pain right now because they don't fit in in the church. Either they feel like they've been betrayed because they've learned things about church history or doctrine or various aspects that uh, they've learned as adults that, that they didn't learn in primary and they feel like maybe they were lied to, or they are in pain because they feel like there's not a place for them in the church, maybe because uh, some of the things they either believe or, or some culturally or some of their politics may not square with the kind of cookie-cutter norm of what we of, of what we think Mormonism is, and, and so they feel stigmatized within their wards. Uh, there are a lot of people who are feeling like they're on the margins and, and, and people who are, who are suffering in a pain. Can we exercise our kind of individual and collective discipleship to mourn with those who mourn? That's, for me, that's the challenge. That was the question that, that was pressing upon me and, and uh, that, that had me write, write the book. And so I think what I really want to do more than anything is, is for us to have better conversations, for us to, to minister to one another, to, to be companions with one another. One of the things I talk about in the book, one of the models, I think, scripturally, are the friends of Job, who when Job is, is, is suffering, of course, Job wasn't going through a kind of faith crisis exactly, although I would have if, if all those things happened to me. Um, but he was, having a, he was having a bad day, a bad week, a uh, bad year. And, um, and his friends came. You remember what his friends did when they first came. They just came and they sat in silence with him. 
I mean, there was nothing they could say, right? I mean, for, for all of his suffering, all his pain, but they just came. I think they came probably prepared to do like a regular home teaching visit, you know? And you know, if they share their ensign message, then all of Job's problems will go away. Well, well, they realized pretty quick that, that the ensign message for that month wasn't going to cover it, right? And so they sat in silence with Job. They sat in silence with him for days. They were just with him. They were just with him. It was this kind of companionship. They got into trouble later when they opened their mouths, right? And they gave him a lot of bad advice and blamed him for all his problems. But, but at first, it's this beautiful model of just companionship, of just being with him. And I, I think so much of it is that. And, and, and so maybe we, can, maybe we can think about that. People, one of the, the problems we have sometimes, and I've heard this reported to me by lots of people who are, who are um, struggling with doubts and questions, is they say that oftentimes the answer that they get from parents or, or bishops or something like that, that is one of two things, and they say this is, this is really not helpful, is one, uh, they, they say, well, just read your scriptures and pray and, and go to church. Well, most of the people who are going through really serious struggles and so forth, a lot of them are returned missionaries, right? I mean, a lot of them, they, they, they've read their scriptures. They, many of them continue to read their scriptures. Many of them are, are still coming to church. They're saying their prayers, right? And so... So what they say, those things are all necessary. It's not to downplay any of those things in terms of maintaining a robust spiritual life. But sometimes they're not sufficient. And, and there are other aspects that, uh, um, th- that those kind of basic things are not meeting all of their needs. So what else is there in terms of, of our ministry to them? The other thing that, uh, that sometimes happens is that, uh, that when they, they talk about their questions or their doubts to their parents or, or to their bishop or, or somebody like that, a friend, the assumption is that they're covering some kind of sin, right? That really what this is all about is a word wisdom problem. Or really what this is all about is, is um, you know, some kind of a, adultery issue or something like that. And now, now granted, that, that can be the case in, in some time, sometimes. But in many cases, I know many, many people where that, that's not the case. They are striving to keep the moral standards of the church. They're trying to hang on with all they can, but, but they're still struggling. And so it's not a cover for sin. And, and when it's suggested that it is, uh, that only pushes them away. It only further alienates them. So I think it's important to take, people, uh, uh, take people's questions and doubts at face value, right? And to answer them, to meet them where they are. Again, to mourn with those who mourn, to, to be with them on their walk. So this book really could only be written, especially as I deal with some of, the, some of the aspects in church history and doctrine, it can only be written, and people say, well, what is the church doing about all these kinds of things? Well, one of the things the church has done is published these, uh, a number of different essays on the gospel topics section of the website. Are you guys uh, aware of these gospel topics essays? So you go to lds.org uh, slash topics. And the church has published over the last couple of years 13 different essays addressing uh, what are the most common uh, questions that, that lead to people's doubts about church history? Uh, it's, it's actually interesting. There have been these surveys that have shown across thousands of people the kinds of things that led to their faith crisis or led, led to their questions about church history and doctrine are uh, very consistent across thousands of people. There's about 10 or 12 different issues. Uh, the Book of Abraham, Book of Mormon, Historicity, and, and Translation, Multiple Accounts of the First Vision, Joseph Smith's Polygamy, Everybody Else's Polygamy, uh, it's uh, Blacks in the Priesthood, and uh, Women in the Priesthood, a number of different things. And, uh, and so the church has published, over the past couple of years, 13 of these essays, these gospel, gospel topics essays, uh, which are terrific. 
They are, if you, if you haven't read them, I, I encourage you to go read them. And they, they might surprise you. They are, uh, they are very scholarly. They're very honest and transparent in, in ways that we haven't always been uh, in our church materials. These, these essays were written by top-flight scholars, people who are trained and know what they're talking about, have done the research, done the hard work. So the church commissioned a number of people around the country uh, to, to help write these essays, and then they went through the process in the church history department, and then went all the way up and were vetted by the, the senior leadership councils of the church, including the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency. So these are things that are not only very solid from a scholarly perspective, but they've also been vetted by, by the church leaders and, and been approved to be put up there on LDS.org. They're finding their way into the curriculum, and, and so we're going to hear more, not less, uh, about these, these essays. Now, People can disagree with them. I don't think you have to agree with every interpretation. I mean, uh, but, uh, but they are based on solid scholarship. They are transparent and honest about many things, again, that the church has not always had an easy time talking about. And um, they really are, are, are quite good. And, I, and I'll say that both as a historian and, and a scholar, as well as, as, a, as a member of the church. So the, what those essays did for me is they allowed me to talk about some hard things. It's been hard in the church to talk about blacks and the priesthood. It's been hard in the church to talk about Joseph Smith's polygamy and, and some of the really hard aspects of that. It's been hard in the issue to talk about um, Book of Mormon translation. But because of these essays, now we, have, we can talk about them. They're on LDS.org. I mean, you know, we, we can and should know about these things now. And it, it becomes part of our ministry to be able to, to talk to other people and answer their questions. So this, these essays gave me a chance to, to talk about some hard issues and to, and to reflect on them. And many of these issues, really, when you boil it down, they come down to the, to the question of prophets. What does it mean to have a living prophet? What does it mean to have a human being that's been called by God and for other people to raise their right hand and say, we sustain this person as a prophet, seer, and revelator? What does that mean? So that's a little bit of what I want to talk about tonight with the rest of my presentation. And this is, this is based on one of the chapters in my book. But this, this question of what does it mean to have a prophet. So let me start with a story. I went on my mission to Seattle, Washington, and uh, had a great mission there. And did a lot of door knocking uh, with uh, very little apparent uh, results. Um, but uh, the one family that, uh, that I taught who invited us in, and, and we taught it was a nuclear family, mom and dad and kids, and kind of the, 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 the perfect thing. And, and we started teaching them. Everything was great. They started coming to church, liked the members of the ward, loved coming to church. Uh, the members of the ward liked them. I mean, everything was, was kind of perfect. And uh, they, had, they had great questions. The, uh, the, the husband, his name was Greg, he was basically an agnostic, so he was trying to figure out whether he even believed in God at all, let alone if he wanted to join the church. And uh, so, so, so we were kind of going slow when working through the discussions and working with his family. And everything looked great. It looked like they were on, on, on track towards baptism and really a happy life in the church. We gave them the, uh, a copy of the Book of Mormon Reader. Do you know what I'm talking about? The, the one for kids, like with the, the, the illustrated stories from, from the Book of Mormon. We read it with our kids. Uh, I, I think it's very useful. And so we gave it to them so they could read it with their kids and learn more about the Book of Mormon and so forth. They started reading, and uh, everything was fine at first. And, and the, the wife, Lynette, had been getting some pushback from some of her friends and family who had been you know, kind of saying things about Mormons, and, but, but she'd kind of put them off. Well, the, well, they got to this point in the Book of Mormon Reader 
where uh, uh, the Lamanites become cursed. And, uh, and it talks about the dark skins and the cursing and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, this triggered for her because some of her friends and family members had told Lynette, they, they said, you don't want to become a Mormon. You know, the Mormons are kind of racist. Uh, Greg and Lynette were white, working class white uh, folk, but, but the, their friends said, you know, Mormons are kind of racist and they don't have black people in their church or something like that. And I don't know. And so, so and, and Lynette said, no, 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 no. I mean, all the people I've met are very nice, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're not racist. And, and, uh, um, and uh, but, but then they came across this in, in the Book of Mormon Reader. And, and so they came, the next time we came over, uh, they had questions, and, and they said, so we've heard about this, and other people have heard about something about blacks not being in your church or something like that, and so we, 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 we talked about it and talked about the, 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 the priesthood ban a little bit. And of course, I'm a 19-year-old kid, right? What do I know? And so Greg, the, the husband, again, the one who isn't sure if he believes in God yet, he, he asked a series of questions that I thought were very perceptive and have kind of stuck with me until today. He said, so, so let me get this straight. He said, so... Does God love everybody? And I said, yes. And he said, does God love white people more than he loves black people? And I said, no. And he said, and you believe that your church is led by prophets who talk to God, right? And get revelations from God. And I said, yes. And he said, and for, you're telling me that for 125 years, those prophets who apparently were talking to God and getting revelations from God, the message was not to let black people have the priesthood. And that for a decade, decade and a half after the civil rights movement, the message from God was not to let black people have the priesthood. These are very good questions. This is from the same guy who, by the way, when we taught him about the word of wisdom, he said, uh, he said, well, obviously God's never had a double tall latte, or he would have never come up with that rule. Uh, also, foolproof logic, I, 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 to take his word on it, okay? But, um, but very good questions, tough questions. A 19-year-old kid, I, uh, fortunately, I didn't give him the very bad answers that sometimes we have used uh, to explain and excuse the priesthood and temple ban. Uh, but I didn't have very good answers. After that, things just kind of fizzled out. They came to church a couple more times, but it just, just things kind of fizzled out, and, and eventually we just kind of parted ways. They never got baptized. It's, it's really kind of the, the biggest regret from my mission, that I didn't have good enough answers for Greg and Lynette. I don't know that it was my fault. I don't know if, any, if it was anybody's fault, but I didn't have good enough answers. I think Greg really put his finger on the problem. It's not a historical question. We know the history, right? There really isn't much debate about what happened historically. It's a question about prophets. It's a question about theology and what does it mean to have prophets. There's a, uh, uh, there's a European scholar, Walter Van Beck. He's, he's talked about how in, in Mormonism we've had this, uh, what, what he calls the notion of creeping infallibility. There's a creeping sense of infallibility within the church. And there's, there's this uh, quote, some of you have surely heard this, uh, that I like it. It says, Catholics teach that the Pope is infallible, but nobody believes it. Mormons teach that the prophet is fallible, but nobody believes it. <laughs> Contrast that to Lorenzo Snow, who was himself a prophet, knew something of what, you, of, uh, what he spoke. Lorenzo Snow said this, I saw Joseph Smith, the prophet, do things which I did not approve of. And yet I thanked God 
that he would put upon a man who had these imperfections the power and authority which he placed upon him. For I knew I myself had weaknesses, and I thought there was a chance for me. I thanked God I saw these imperfections. Isn't that a great quote? You know, I think in some ways it was easier for Lorenzo Snow and for the 19th century saints to think about this notion of prophetic fallibility than it is for us today. They, they knew prophets and apostles, right? I mean, you know, people in Nauvoo shopped at Joseph Smith's store and learned firsthand that he wasn't a very good businessman, right? I mean, people, people saw, you know, I think it's probably easier to understand that a prophet or an apostle is a human being when you just see him riding a horse around town or whatever, Right? But we don't, in, in the 21st century church, that's not the relationship we have with the prophets and apostles of our church, right? I mean, it's a 15 million member church across the globe. Uh, they're headquartered in, in Salt Lake City. I mean, for most of us, the only time we ever see a prophet and apostle is on TV twice a year, right? For 15 minutes at a time, right? In a, in a highly stylized, highly scripted environment where, where they kind of, I mean, you know, what, what we see are kind of paragons of, of spirituality, right? And, and that's all we see. We don't experience them really as human beings. We only experience them as, as people talking at the pulpit. So I think it's hard for us sometimes to, to think about the humanity and think about what it means for God to call human beings as prophets and apostles because we don't really have a relationship with them as human beings. Uh, we have a highly mediated relationship with them. And so it's easy for us to put them on a pedestal, I think. But uh, we don't have to look any further than the scriptures to, to think about God calling very human people to be prophets, right? So, so think about the, the Old Testament. I was, um, I was in, uh, playing uh, the piano in primary, thanks to my good friend Shannon over here, uh, uh, the other on Sunday, and we sang Follow the Prophet, which always... I always feel like I'm in a Soviet gulag or something like that, like marching around. But, but, but anyway, it's, it's a nice song. My kids love it. And so, so, so we were singing Follow the Prophet, and I was sort of scanning the additional verses, the ones that we can't remember the words of, right? And, and thinking about who are the prophets we're supposed to follow in this song. And so we've got Adam. I, I've got nothing against Adam. He seems like a nice guy. Um, you know, had a fruit problem. But, um, but, uh, but, but then after that... Uh, we have Noah, who, uh, from what we can tell, had a word of wisdom problem, uh, at least once, uh, if, if not more than that. We have Abraham, who was not always honest in his dealings uh, with, with his fellow men. We have Moses, who had a bit of a violence problem. He, he killed somebody, right? I don't know, we can say it's in self-defense or it was justified or something like that. But this is not, when, when I'm teaching my kids moral and ethical behavior, killing people is not on, on the list. I mean, that's their natural... I'm trying to get that out of them, right? <laughs> Don't kill your brother, right? And, and Jonah, so I think verse 7 is Jonah. Jonah's an interesting prophet figure, right? Uh, to absolutely refuse the voice of God. And then when he does, uh, he wants God to wipe out the people that he was preaching to. Again, not, I don't think that's what the missionary guide says, any, or Preach My Gospel says about the, the charity one should have for, for the people one's teaching. So these are complicated figures, actually. The Old Testament has very complicated, very interesting characters, right? But, but I think part of the message of Scripture, I mean, this is, this is the record 
that Jews preserved over the centuries. This is the record that Christians chose to preserve as part of our scriptures to say this is the narrative of God working with humanity, of a faithful God working with oftentimes very faithless or unfaithful people. The story of the Bible, the story of scripture, is God reaching down and trying to redeem people who seem to be doing everything in their power to be very unlovable and irredeemable. But that's the story of scripture, right? Is God working with ordinary human beings to do his work because that's all he has to work with. Moroni, uh, one of the great prophets, of course, of the Book of Mormon, says this. This is at the end of the, of the Book of Mormon, his father's book. He says, condemn me not because of my imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath manifest, has, has made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. That is a remarkable statement. This is Moroni, the prophet. He's going to bury the plates and come back and give them to, to Joseph Smith. This is Moroni. I said, I am imperfect. My father is imperfect. All the people before them were imperfect. And you should thank God that you know that we're imperfect so that you can be better than we are. All right? Prophets don't point people to prophets. They point people to Christ. Right? This is what makes them reliable guides for a life of faith because they point us to the person who can save us. And so Moroni says, don't look at me. I'm here to point you to the one who can save. I think sometimes in the church, and I think this started very early, we've made the mistake of confusing and conflating truth with and the truthfulness of the gospel with the moral perfection of those who proclaim it. I think this started very early, in, in the church as soon as there was anti-Mormonism. And actually, anti-Mormonism is basically as old as, as Mormonism. And the very first anti-Mormon book, uh, called Mormonism Unveiled, was published by guys with two, two great names, uh, Eber Howe, and then the wonderfully named Dr. Philastus Hurlbut. Uh, that was really his name. He wasn't a real doctor. His, his parents named him Doctor. Um, they had high hopes for this child. But his name was Dr. Philastus Hurlbut. But, uh, but what they did, this was in the early 1830s, within a year or two of, of the church being founded, and they didn't like Mormonism. And, and they decided the way that they were going to discredit Mormonism, the way that they were going to show that it was a fraud... Uh, was that they went to Palmyra and interviewed people who knew the Smith family. And their assumption was if we could interview these people and show that the Smiths, you know, that Joseph Smith is not some paragon of virtue, this saintly character, you know, as we think of when we think about prophets, right, then, then that'll debunk the, the whole thing. And so they went and they got affidavits from people. And in fact, that's the image that emerges, is that the Smiths were very ordinary people, uh, who uh, had plenty of human foibles. This is, uh, lots of people describe the Smiths as a little bit lazy. I mean, I, I think there's some neighborly stuff going on. But uh, it's not a glowing portrait. This is where we hear about Joseph Smith as a money digger and, and, and things like this. And, the, and so the, the, kind of the whole logic behind Eber Howe and Dr. Philastus Hurlbut's uh, project was to, was to say, if... Joseph Smith is a human. If his feet are made of clay, if, if he does things that, that, that we don't associate with prophethood, then he can't be a prophet. 
the early members of the church essentially, and I think we've been doing this ever since in a way, took the bait. And they responded by defending the character of Joseph Smith. I think this is important to do. We defend the character of our friends and, and our leaders and the people that we love. But there are times when we have defended Joseph Smith on grounds that were somewhat indefensible. Uh, when I was on my mission, I can't tell you how many times, and this happened, there was a lot of anti-Mormon literature that was circling around Seattle, so, so I heard a lot of these kinds of things. And I can't tell you how many times I knocked on people's doors and in conversation with them testified with all the zeal that a 19-year-old could muster and testified and affirmed that Joseph Smith was not a money digger and never used seer stones to search for buried treasure. I mean, I, I knew that for a fact, right? In fact, I didn't know anything. I was a 19-year-old kid, right? And, but I test, I, I, test, I said, I know this, right? Well, I come home from my mission, I read a few books, and, and realize that that thing that I knew was false, that, uh, that, that Joseph Smith had been a money digger, that he had used seer stones to search for buried Spanish treasure. That's what sent him to northern Pennsylvania when he met M.S. Smith, or M.S. Hale. Uh, and Joseph, Joseph never denied this. In 1838, in the Elder's Journal, one of the church periodicals, they did kind of a Q&A with the prophet. It's kind of cool. And, he, um, and they said, was, was not Joe Smith a money digger? And the answer was, Yes, he was, uh, but he quit because it wasn't a very good profession. He only made 14 bucks a month doing it, so it wasn't very profitable. But, but in, in his own, I mean, the, the, there was no sense of embarrassment or shame. Or, I mean, it was just part of his, of his history. But, but we had sort of whitewashed that, I think, because we, it, it didn't jive with our understanding of, of profit. And we can talk about seer stones and stuff uh, later, but, but uh, if, if you want to. But, but for me... I had testified that was not true because I hadn't heard it in primary, and, and, and that was not effective ministry. I was testifying of untruths. And so we had sort of bit on this logic that Eberhau and Dr. Philastus Hurlbut had created, that, that a prophet, in order to be a prophet, must essentially be perfect and cannot be a human and cannot really be participating in culture in any significant way. David O. McKay said, when God makes the prophet, he does not unmake the man. We know that, I mean, our own doctrine teaches that uh, the prophets must have their free agency. From prophets to primary presidents and everybody in between, our leaders must have and exercise their free agency. Otherwise, there's no point. Otherwise, uh, we're doing somebody else's plan. That for the most part, God teaches prophets, just like all of us, teaches them true principles and lets them govern themselves. One of the very first commandments to the church, section 21, uh, this is given on the day that the church was organized in 1830. God said, Wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his, the prophets, words and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. For his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth, in all patience and faith. I think we're very good in the church and have been at receiving these words in all faith. But do we do it with patience? So let's go back to 1852. Let's go back to the priesthood ban. Let's go back to my friend Greg's questions. What are we to do with Brigham Young and the priesthood ban? What are we, do, what are we to do with it now? What would we have done with it if we were there in 1852. Of course, Brigham Young, when he introduced 
the priesthood ban authoritatively. It was not in general conference. It was in a session of the territorial legislature. They were debating a bill on, it was called an act relating to servitude, really slavery. And it was in that context, that political context, that, that Brigham Young uh, first made the, the declaration that blacks would not hold the priesthood. Of course, blacks before that had held the priesthood. Brigham Young knew that. He had complimented many African-American uh, priesthood holders. Uh, but, he, but he said at that point, blacks would no longer have the priesthood and would not be given the priesthood in this life. During those same debates, Orson Pratt, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, stood up and said, Shall we take then the innocent African that has committed no sin and damn him to slavery and bondage without receiving any authority from heaven to do so? Orson Pratt didn't buy what Brigham Young was selling at the time. And this happened oftentimes. Orson Pratt and Brigham Young locked horns repeatedly. But Orson Pratt had demonstrated time and time again. He was so faithful and so committed to the church. He had had a brief lapse in 1838 during the Missouri War. Uh, But other than that, Orson Pratt was absolutely faithful. Brigham Young knew it. And even though they locked horns and had some battle royales over the years, Orson Pratt was not going to be driven out of the church by Brigham Young. And he was not going to leave. And... And Orson Pratt was, was, was willing to say when he believed that his, that his brother in the Quorum of the Twelve um, didn't have the authority to say what he did. So the question for us as Mormons, and this is a really deep question of our theology, can we believe that fallible, ordinary human beings can also be conduits for the Lord's will? That, that is, you know, think about that. That is one of the great claims that Mormonism makes, that ordinary human beings can be touched by God and can become conduits of his will and his word and his voice. That's a remarkable claim. Do we believe it? Can a prophet, do we believe, can he be inspired on one day and in error, perhaps even on the same day, even in the same sermon? I could show you some Brigham Young sermons. Do we believe this of our bishops, of our state presidents, our Relief Society presidents? Do we allow them to be human? I think in some ways it's easier for us because we see them, right? We know they're ordinary human beings who have a calling from God. They've been touched with a special calling and they do their best in it. And, we, and I think we give them oftentimes a lot of grace um, to allow them to do that because we know them. Because before that, they were just ordinary members of the church like us. It might be harder for us with prophets and apostles who we don't see and we don't have those kind of personal relationships with. Do we believe that we, ourselves, with all of our flaws, our filters, our prejudices, can be genuinely inspired of the Lord? This is the great promise of Mormonism, that you, me, and everybody can be conduits of the Lord's voice and will. That is a remarkable statement. Do we believe that the weak things of the world can be agents of God? Spencer W. Kimball, who of course was the prophet who received the revelation to end the priesthood and temple ban, said this, as he reflected on that experience of receiving that revelation. He said, day after day, and especially on Saturdays and Sundays when there were no sessions in the temple, I went there where I could be alone. I was very humble. I was searching for this. I wanted to be sure. I had a great deal to fight, myself largely, because I had grown up with this thought that Negroes should not have the priesthood. And I was prepared to go all the rest of my life until my death and fight for it and defend it 
as it was. But this revelation and assurance came to me so clearly that there was no question about it. He also said, President Kimball said, I know the Lord could change his policy and release the ban and forgive the possible error which brought about the deprivation. President Kimball was willing to grant that perhaps some of his predecessors, perhaps there had been some error. And that if so, that the Lord could forgive it. And so sometimes we've told a narrative that maybe God, uh, that, that maybe the prophets were waiting on God. Um, but if, I think if we take President Kimball at his word, perhaps it was more like God was waiting patiently on his prophets and on the church. So human fallibility, it's simply, I think, it's, it's the cross we bear as fellow human beings and the laboratory for exercising and developing the Christian virtues of grace and humility and forgiveness. The question for me as I think about Brigham Young, who was a remarkable leader and an inspired leader, uh, the question for me as I think about him on that day in 1852 and all the other things he said since then, if I believe that Brigham Young was in error, if I believe that he introduced something, uh, something into the church that perhaps did not meet the standards of what I think the celestial kingdom is going to look like, the question for me is, can I forgive Brigham Young? Can I be patient with Brigham Young? If I believe that he or somebody else, even current leaders, if I believe that, that they've maybe made a mistake or if they've done things to have hurt people that I love, can I exercise patience, as the Revelation says, and forgiveness? Or do I only require them to exercise those Christian virtues on my behalf? The revelation uh, that we cite oftentimes says, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. I think sometimes we, we take that verse alone. We don't consider it in the context of the entire section. If you look three verses earlier in that section, the Lord says, Joseph Smith has sinned. So the commandment to the church to forgive one another comes immediately on the heels of the Lord saying, the prophet has sinned. That, that, that puts it in a little different context for me, right? It's, it's not just me uh, for forgiving you know, one another, but he's saying Joseph Smith, who, who he has chosen to be the prophet of the restoration, he had sinned. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what Joseph Smith had done that day or that week or whatever, right? But, but the Lord said it in the Revelation. Joseph Smith, if he was all that interested in creating a doctrine of prophetic infallibility, he was lousy at it because the doctrine and covenants is full of, the, of God telling him to repent, right? Uh, so he didn't cover his tracks very well. Uh, I don't think he was inclined to cover his tracks. Uh, Joseph Smith has many, many statements where he admits his imperfections. And we sometimes say, well, that forgiveness, it can come cheap and so forth. But forgiveness is not cheap. And there's a lot of discussion about this, I think, in the wake of the Charleston shootings and things like this. Forgiveness is not cheap. It's not easy. Forgiveness is not to ignore what we see as sin or error or wrongdoing. In, in fact, it's just the opposite. It's to stare it straight in the eye and to say that it will not triumph because we put our trust in the redemption of Christ. That's what forgiveness is. It's an exercise in hope. So all this, I think, is what I would tell Greg and Lynette if I could go back and, and uh, you know, t- 
20 some odd years and, and sit with them in their living room again. Um, our conversation wouldn't be so much about explanations. It wouldn't be about excuses. It would be about forgiveness and grace and patience and faith, what it means to be part of a community. Most of all, it would be about hope and reconciliation and atonement. Because I think we tell a lot of stories in the church, and we have a lot of wonderful stories that we tell. But if our stories aren't centered on Christ's redemption of humanity and history, we talk a lot about Christ redeeming us and our as individuals, but Christ redeems history too. Christ redeems the stories that we tell, the stories that we have told, the stories that our ancestors are in, the stories that we are in. Christ redeems history if we'll let him. And so if our stories aren't full of Christ, if they don't point to him and his redemption of humanity and history, then they're not very good stories. And so for all these issues, whatever they might be, whether it be Joseph Smith's, uh, whether it be polygamy, whether it be the priesthood ban, whether it be uh, Book of Mormon historicity, whether, whatever our issues are, gender, continuing gender issues in the church, LGBT issues in the church, I think what God calls us to do is to come at these issues with honesty. We believe in being honest. It's part of our Temple Recommend interview. I think he calls us to come at it by doing our homework, by study as well as by faith. I think he calls, that, calls us to come at these things with humility, to know that we don't understand everything, we can't see everything, we can't look into other people's hearts and know exactly what's going on, uh, but also the humility to know that maybe we're wrong and maybe we need to change our view, that maybe our views are culturally conditioned just as much as Brigham Young's were. That we recognize the reality of human fallibility, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, the great 20th century Protestant theologian, he has a, he has a quote that I love. He, he says, the doctrine of original sin, and we, we don't really believe in original sin, or we say we don't, but we all sin, so good enough, right? Um, but, uh, but the doctrine of original sin, Reinhold Niebuhr says, is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Right? Resurrection of Jesus Christ, Kind of got to take it on faith. Can't prove it, right? Uh, all these kinds of things. But, the, but I can prove, right on say, I can prove that people sin, right? That's, that's, that's the one doctrine of Christianity that I can really prove. And, and it's true, right? It's so universal that sometimes we forget uh, how important it is to wrestle with that. And then we have to become comfortable with, with complexity. This goes back to what I was talking about at the very beginning. That reality and religion are not two-dimensional. And this cosmos that God has put us in, this, we deal with complex issues. We're adults. We deal with complex moral issues all the time. We do it at work. We do it in our marriages. We do it in our families. We have to learn to do it in our church. Our religion has to be just as grown up as we are. We have to learn to do it. And we have to come at it with all of the humanity and faith and forgiveness and grace that we can. And I personally believe, and this was one of the major themes of the book, um, and I'll, I'll close with this. I personally believe that the best place to work all these things out is together. We don't in Mormonism have a monastic tradition where you go out into the desert and spend the rest of your life all, all by yourself. For us, religion is always social. It is always interpersonal. It's always the relationships that we have with one another. And so I think we have to work these things out together in communion with one another. So I want to close by reading um, just one little passage from the book. This is uh, 
actually kind of my favorite little section. And this is a, a little kind of two-page meditation, I call it, on doubting Thomas. And Thomas gets a bad rap, right? It's like, you say, I say Thomas, you say doubting, right? You know, in fact, last night I was flipping through the index, and, and I, I just happened to, to go where, where it says Thomas, and then it doesn't give a page number, it just says Thomas. See Doubting Thomas. Right? I didn't prepare the index, it was done for me, but, but it's like, okay, we can't let the guy off the hook, right? So this is, this is my meditation on Doubting Thomas, and this, this is where I want to close, and then we'll have questions and conversation. His very name has come to be associated with faithlessness and doubt. The story is familiar, but worth retelling. Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be, uh, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Thomas had every reason to doubt and to leave. His professed Messiah was executed as an enemy of the state. His fellow disciples had spent the previous days quibbling over who would get the chief seats in the kingdom of heaven and then had disappeared into thin air when their master was taken. The vaunted kingdom of God consisted of a few hundred people max, and now even that number seemed laughable. But had Thomas set off on his own on Good Friday, when things looked so bleak and Jesus' broken and bloodied body was being interred in the cold, hopeless tomb, had he separated himself from the company of his fellow apostles, most of whom were also more full of doubt than belief in those days, then he would have never witnessed the miraculous manifestation of the risen Christ. In the moment of his greatest crisis, when he had absolutely no reason to believe and even less to stay, when it looked like everything he had lived and sacrificed for over the past three years was a complete sham, Thomas encountered Jesus did so in communion with the apostles. He came to believe spiritually because he came physically to believe. It was the church, for all its early faithlessness and imperfections, which was Thomas's salvation and ultimately the agent of God's grace in his life and in the world. So my invitation with this book and there's so much pain, and there's so much suffering. There are so many people suffering right now. My invitation is whether we, as a church, can have better conversations. Whether those of us who are struggling and, and, and have pain and doubts and don't know if we can hold on any longer, whether we can be like Thomas and stay in the orbit of the apostles and hope to experience, to have an experience, with the resurrected Christ. And those of us who maybe are more like the apostles, who have had experiences that we can rely upon, uh, that maybe we can welcome Thomas in our midst with a little less judgment and find ways to have conversations, find ways to minister 
to mourn with those who mourn, to accompany them on their journey of faith. God gives us all different gifts. We're all at different places. It's almost trite to say that, but do we really take that seriously? Can we imagine a church that encompasses people at all different places in their journey of faith? I hope we can, and I uh, hope we can continue the conversation. Uh, thanks. thanks for being here. Just a few minutes late. I'll bet uh, people wouldn't mind if you would take questions for maybe five or ten minutes after the hour. Sure. Uh, may I start? Yeah. The um, you talked about we should solve this as a community. Uh, the church is our community, but you talked about the limitations of the three-hour block. So now I'm talking really practical. Rubber meets the road. Perhaps in um, adult Sunday school class, or perhaps in in the high priest group, maybe the elders quorum. Uh, is that an, an area where we completely sidetrack the lesson by asking a pertinent question that reaches some of these points? Or should we say the people we home teach do not have the issue, but another brother in the ward does. Do I reach outside my home teaching and, and say, let's go for a hike and spend a morning? Yeah. Well, I, I think in the latter case, absolutely. I mean, if our... If, if, if our ministry and, uh, and our relationships are limited to the people that we've been assigned uh, by, you know, an elders quorum president, and I've been an elders quorum president enough times to know that I wouldn't say that all of those assignments were infallible. Um, uh, uh, if, if, we, if we limit the relationships we have to, to, to that, then, I mean, what... How can we call ourselves Christians? I mean, so, so of course, when, when we see people who are struggling, when, when we feel we have something that, that we can share, not to, people don't want to be solved, right? People, most, most people don't want to be solved. I mean, they don't see themselves as a problem for you to solve. If anything, pe- people want uh, understanding and compassion and, and a listening ear, maybe a sounding board. Maybe some ideas, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, to, to kind of um, ask some, some questions and see, see what, what kind of things you have. Um, but I think if we go around thinking that we're going to solve everybody's problems, um, there, there's a certain hubris to that. In, t- in terms of the, of the, uh, the three-hour block, I, I think it's going to be, you know, it, it's, it's no mystery to you. I mean, every Relief Society is different. Every Elders Quorum is different. Every High Priest group is different. They all have different personalities. The, the, the people in there are different. And, and, and so I don't think there's any one blanket rule. I do think that we, um, you know, I hear a lot sometimes, oh, boy, church is so boring, or, or we can't ever talk about anything, or, or whatever. I think we have to be realistic about what the purposes of those three hours are. And I think when we come at a lesson or something like that, and essentially want to hijack it so it becomes about um, us and our questions, I, I think we have to ask ourselves if, if we're really showing kind of sufficient charity towards everybody else in, in, in the group. Now, I do think that, that many of our classes can, can be better. And I think our conversations can be more honest. They can be more adult. Uh, I mean, they're all adults in the room, right? And uh, uh, so, so I think we can have more mature and, and complicated conversations. I think we need to nurture a way to do that. Uh, it's, it's very difficult, and I, I'm a graduate, so I, I think it happens little by little. I think it happens as we build capital with one another. I mean, I really believe that if, if, if people trust you, 
you know, if, if you've helped them move in and out, I mean, if you've taught their kids in primary, if, if you've done all these kinds of things, then when you open your mouth with, with a tough question, something kind of maybe offbeat or not, not one of the approved questions in the lesson manual, right? Uh, I think people are willing to listen. Uh, I, th- I think Mormons are a generous people. And, and, and that when we've built a, a kind of a relationship and spiritual trust with people, I, I think people, uh, if, if they feel a kind of authenticity and sincerity about where you're coming from, and they don't feel attacked, um, then, then I, th- I think people can re- respond charitably. But I do think we have to do many things. That, 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 again, if our religion begins and ends at that three-hour block, it's, uh, it's going to be a shallow religion. That three-hour block cannot do everything we need it to do to build a life of Christian discipleship. And so this is a great model, right? What we're doing right here, this is amazing. This, this, this is what we should be doing. We should be going to lunch with, with one another. We, we, should be, um, we, we should be talking about these things. We, we, should, we should be willing to be vulnerable with one another and, um, and, 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 and to, to go to friends when we have questions. And uh, we just need to do so much more ministry than, than can be done in the three-hour block. Uh, I, the last thing I'll say about that is, is I, I, I think the three-hour block is going to get better in, in some of these regards. The, uh, the, the church is starting to build in, in regards to some of these church history and doctrine issues, the church is starting to build some of these things into the curriculum. Uh, so, for instance, next time we study doctrine and covenants and, and church history, we're going to talk about multiple accounts of the first vision. And that's being built into the seminary curriculum. And, and uh, uh, last week when I talked gospel doctrine, we talked about seer stones and Joseph Smith looking in a hat and, um, and, and, and had uh, um, nobody ran out the door. And I'm not doing anything weird or dangerous because that's on LDS.org, right? I mean, uh, so, so it's, it's not my agenda. It's not, it's not what I want to do. It's not, it's, we're there to, to serve one another and be disciples together. So I want to say one fun. more thing. Um, as soon as I started practicing law, and had just a little bit of spare change. I bought a book called, um, I think it's New Witnesses for Christ, and it collected every early discussion of Mormonism. I think that's the volume, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was so excited to read even the stuff that ends up people talking about being negative. I was excited to read about the different accounts of the first vision. And now we're, I'm talking about primary sources. Mm-hmm. Now I'm seeing how it really happened. It's, it's simply strengthened me. It didn't rock me. Yeah. One and would expect there to be multiple counts of the first vision, and that's that's life. And um, so well, and I think we have to be willing to put in the work, right? I mean, so it's when we have questions, when we have these kinds of things, we, we have to be willing to, to pick up a book and read a little bit. I mean, you know, people who's uh, uh, again who's um, Faith or, or, or questions or, or their knowledge about church history begins and ends with a blog post um, are, are not exhausting uh, uh, the complexity of, of church history, and so, uh, so so we have to we have to be willing to do the work. So other questions, yes, sir. So I'm wondering if, to a certain extent, we've become victims of our own success. My understanding was that before uh, before polygamy was. Uh, was banned that it wasn't such a mantra to follow the prophet and then at that point it became follow the prophet and so I don't know how it was back then but today we present following the prophet and following the commandments and and accepting the council of church leaders as the gold standard and 
<clears throat> so maybe we're looking at them wrong. Maybe we're being taught in our church to look at them a certain way, and then we have this the questions of your investigator in Seattle pointing out that for 125 years they quoted each other and perpetuated what we now acknowledge is not really, really true. And so, so there seems to be a conflict there. And so maybe, maybe we're not looking at the prophets in the church the right way. Well, I do think, and it's, it's a good question. I mean, the authority of prophets and the idea that God has called a prophet and will reveal his will through a prophet, and that we should listen to the prophet. I mean, that's from day one. I mean, you know, that, that verse I read, in all patience and faith. I mean, the first part of that verse is, you're going to receive all the words which I will reveal to him, to the prophet, as if from mine own mouth, right? And so, so, so the idea of listening to prophets and looking to prophets for, for God's voice and God's will is not new. I mean, that's, that's what attracted people to Mormonism in Joseph Smith's time, that there was a prophet on earth. And so that's... That's not new in and of itself, and, and Brigham Young emphasized obedience a, a, a lot. I mean, during that, that polygamy uh, period and stressed loyalty and, and so forth. It, had a, it did have a slightly different flavor back then, and, and this phrase, follow the prophet, is, if, if you look at it, it's, it's mostly emerged in the kind of uh, late 20th century, sort of, sort of since the presidency of David O. McKay and since then, it's this particular phrase. But the idea of the prophets are central and, and that we, um, as a church community, have been graced with uh, with a, a prophet called of God is goes back to the very beginning. The question I think is then we, we have not done a very good job of thinking through what 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 that means all the time and what our relationship is to to the prophet and and we I, I just think we, we without in any way undermining our ability to raise our right hand and sustain them as prophets, seers, and revelators. It's to acknowledge what they've acknowledged all along, what Moroni acknowledged when he wrote that verse in the Book of Mormon, what Joseph Smith acknowledged repeatedly, is that they are not the, the standard to which we look uh, because they point to the standard to which we look. Right? And uh, so, so that's... A, Perhaps we need to do a little better thinking about that. Yes? I think one thing that hasn't been brought up is that prophets also can be constrained by the people. Sure. Christ in the New Testament said, Moses changed the law because of the hardness of the hearts of the people. You read Uncle Tom's Cabin, and the first conclusion is there's absolutely no way that church members back then would have accepted black leadership. How much did that play into Brigham Young saying, hey, you know, let's, let's back off here? Maybe it's perpetuated unnecessarily, but I think a lot of the stuff that the prophets declare is because of the hardness of the hearts of the people at that time, at that level of culture, whatever is going on. I think we're all in it together, right? And uh, this is, we are, we, we are in a, uh, an organic relationship with, with our prophets. And, and so we... I, I think we get the religion that we want and deserve, right? and and so it's. I, I think I think it's. Uh, I, I think there's it, with that particular issue with uh, with blacks and the priesthood. Wouldn't it have been marvelous if if our ancestors, if if those terrific pioneer saints that that we respect so deeply for so many reasons, but if they had been a little more prophetic towards the culture, right? If, if they had found, as they read the New Testament, if, if they would, when they read the Book of Mormon and said that all are alike unto God, black and white, and if, if they um, 
had, uh, had reflected on that a little bit more and said, you know, we're not going to accept the prevailing racial ideas of our culture. We're, we're not going to. We're going to be a prophetic people, uh, even if it's unpopular. What, what would have happened then? Right? I, I think Christ calls us, uh, he, he doesn't just give us prophets, but he calls us as a people to, to be prophetic towards the world. And uh, can we be prophetic as a people um, and, uh, and display what the body of Christ might look like? Yeah, back here. So I, kind of, I have a question that's kind of at, at the heart of that and then the other two themes that I was sort of picking up from you, which are really lovely, which was this notion that we should be having more effective dialogue and that we should be patient with our readers and forgive them. But I think one of the challenges is in as much as we're patient and forgiving, if those are the only two things that we're doing, we risk allowing things to go on sure. where things could maybe be better. And I think one of the challenges for our leaders is that they are removed, as you acknowledged, from some of the dialogue that we have here. You know, they're just not able to be a part of that conversation. They're not part of our everyday lives, like you were talking about earlier. And so I think one of the challenges is how do we create a, di- a dialogue that reaches through this hierarchy that we have as a church that helps us to progress in places that maybe we have prolonged you know, the time of movement of revelation because, because there's a, a lack of, dis- there's a disconnect, a lack of understanding on these issues. I think that's one of the, as, as I talk to a lot of people as I read the blogs and things like that, I think this is a, this is a very real frustration right now. People who feel like they're not heard, right? That um, what they see or hear coming uh, from Salt Lake, for them, doesn't seem to, to reflect uh, the realities on the ground that, that they see. I'm one who, who believes that, that, uh, that our leaders in Salt Lake may be a little more plugged in than, than sometimes we give them credit for. But it does, it, there is a, a real, how do I talk to an apostle, right? I mean, if, if, if I've got questions, concerns, something like that, uh, good for Orson Pratt. He and Brigham Young were in the corner of the 12 together, right? They could have these kind of fights. But I mean, I have no access to, to, to them. So, so how, how do we have these kinds of conversations? I would say a couple of things, I and mean, this is a long conversation, but, but just in two minutes, what I would say is this. Uh, two things. First of all, one of my very favorite quotes of, of all time is by Martin Luther King, who said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I believe that, and the reason I believe that is not just because I like to believe it. I believe it uh, because I think this is the message of the resurrection of Christ. I think this is the message of Scripture, of, we just finished teaching, reading the book of Revelation and, and gospel doctrine. This is the message of Scripture, is that because Christ has triumphed over death and evil and Satan, that we can have hope that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We know that in the end, Christ wins, justice wins, mercy wins, love wins. We know that. So, so the challenge for us is to be on the side of justice, but also to have the patience to, to recognize that God works with his people over a long time. The Old Testament is, a, is thousands of years long of God working with his, pe- their, his people to, to drag them out of, in some ways, a kind of moral cesspool, going, leading from uh, fratricide to genocide to then finally the, the, the prophets later on, Isaiah and Amos and so forth, talking about justice and mercy and things like that. It took... It, it, it took God's people a long time to get there. Um, hopefully we can do a little better than that. So I do believe, um, I'm a bit of a, my theory of change is somewhat gradual, and I believe I'm in it for the long haul. I think we're in it for the long haul. And, uh, and so I believe in taking small steps along the way. The other thing that, that I would say, one of the things I talk about in the church, is I think 
in terms of tactics, if we feel like things have to change, if, if, we, if we feel this urgency, and I hope we do, when I think it's a better model to work with church leaders rather than against them. And the story that I tell in the book is of Maxine Hanks. Uh, Maxine is a um, very bright uh, a feminist, uh, a very strong and outspoken feminist who in the early 1990s put together a, a, a volume called Women in Authority, which asked a lot of provocative questions uh, about uh, women and, and the priesthood. And Maxine was very outspoken on feminist issues, and uh, she was excommunicated uh, by the church. And we can debate whether that was a right or wrong. I'll leave it to those who are more familiar with the details of the case. But, but she was excommunicated by the church. And uh, more than 20 years later, a couple years later, or a couple years ago, Maxine was rebaptized into the church. And she is still a very strong feminist. And she was rebaptized into the church. And, and I heard her speak, and what she said was very interesting. She said, she says, I was excommunicated at the time, um, and I don't think she was really excusing the action or what happened or even necessarily agreed with it, but she said, but, but my problem at the time is that I thought the church leaders were an obstacle that had to be overcome. And so my whole approach to church leaders was to argue with them, to fight with them, to find ways around them, and I thought that they were an obstacle. And so I spent years and years working against church leaders. And she says, in that 20 years when she was out of the church, and she did a lot of things with Christian ministry and so forth, uh, she said, during that time, I realized that I wasn't giving them the kind of charity that I expected from them. And so she said, when I decided to get rebaptized, when she came back to the church, she said, the, the, the only difference for me, she said, I have not changed any of my views about feminism. Uh, she says, when I was interviewed to be rebaptized, I was not asked to recant my book. I was not asked to, and I wouldn't do it anyway. She said, I haven't changed my views about feminism. Uh, but she says, the difference is that now I believe I can work with church leaders rather than against them. And uh, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of power and, and a lot of wisdom uh, in that. So, so we find ways to work together. We're all in this together. We're, they're not separate classes of people in the body of Christ. We're all people with different callings. And I think we have to find ways to work, to work together. Yeah. Uh, given that you've apparently advanced since you've been 19. I hope so. <laughs> have you ever thought about reaching out to Greg and Lynette again? Yeah, I've totally lost touch with them, and I'm bad. I'm not on Facebook or anything like that. But I, I've, I've thought about it. I'm actually going up to Seattle next month to, to do a talk like this, and I've thought about you maybe know, you I can track them down. I do know that I ran into Greg a little while after this, a couple years after this, um, and we actually exchanged letters for the rest of my mission and, and so forth, and then I ran into him. They'd gotten divorced, and, um, you know, again, this part of would their marriage have been saved if they would have been in the church? I, who, who knows? I hope so. But, um, yeah, I'd like to, it'd be nice to reconnect with them. Yes? The problem I have is uh, I'm perfectly willing to forgive Brigham Young and, and all these people, but how do I build faith when I have these conversations with my friends that are having problems? The question is always, then how do you have any faith at all? You know, so we were wrong on the priesthood, or we were wrong on this or that, so we're going to be wrong on the gay issues, we're going to be wrong on the, you know, in 50 years we're going to be wrong on uh, female issues, we're going to be wrong on all those issues, you know, so what do I hold on to now if, if the prophet is that fallible? Yeah. It's a great question. It's, I'm, I'm glad you asked it. It's the, it's the inevitable question, the important question. One thing I would say is 
I don't believe in all or nothing propositions. I mean, I, I, uh, slippery slope arguments are usually bad arguments. And uh, so I, I don't think that to say if the church is wrong or has ever been wrong about one thing, that it's wrong about everything. I mean, that, that's just not good logic. That doesn't hold up in a philosophy 101 class. But, but I think in some ways we are, as somebody has said, we're a victim of our own success. I think in some ways this is the myth we've created together, right? That it's all or nothing. Right? It's all right or it's all wrong. We talk that way sometimes. Okay? Well, if it's all right or it's all wrong, and we don't think it's all wrong, what's the point of a Savior? If we are all right all the time, why do we need Jesus? For us to say that we have faith in a Savior presumes the fact that we think we're wrong sometimes. And I think that Jesus was sent not just to save you and me individually. I think he was sent to save humanity as a group. I think he was sent to save the church. I think he was sent to save society, right? I think he was sent to save us together, not just as individuals. So if we're wrong about one thing, are we going to be wrong about everything? I, I don't think so. And, and, and for me, this, this kind of, it becomes very personal. Do I believe that the Lord has worked through me at times? For me, the answer is yes. Have I been right all the time? Have I always been a perfectly worthy vessel for the Lord's Spirit? No. In my church callings, in my leadership callings, have I done things that now looking back I regret um, and in fact may have been an abuse of authority and, and other things? Yes. And do I need the Lord's forgiveness for that? Yes. Does it invalidate? Did it invalidate my calling at the time? Did it invalidate the honest, worthy efforts I was making at the time? Did it make my elders' quorum not true? No, I don't think so. For me, the, the story has to be about Jesus. The story has to be about Christ and his redemption. It has to be our ability to face up to the problems that we've had, the mistakes we've made in the past, to look at things and to say, are we doing our, our, our actions as individuals, as a church, in line with what we think the gospel of Jesus Christ is? And if not, can we move closer? Can we, can we get there and can we be redeemed by Christ? I mean, I... It, that sounds, I know it sounds Pollyannish. I, I know it sounds in some ways almost naive. But I, I just think if we cannot have a robust doctrine of sin in which God saves us from our sin, saves the church from its shortcomings, then, then I don't think we have all that much faith in Jesus to begin with. And so we're not going to save ourselves. We are co-participants with God. One of the great and beautiful doctrines of Mormonism is that we are co-participants with God. We work with God for the salvation of humans, for the exaltation of humans, we work to build Zion together. We build it. Elder Uchtdorf talks about an ongoing restoration. It wasn't finished in 1830. It wasn't finished in 1844. It's not finished today. It is an ongoing restoration. God continues to reveal things. It's part of our articles of faith. And so is the, per is the church perfect now? No. Is it going to be perfect next week? No. But are we, are we participating with Christ in the redemption of Zion? I hope so. I mean, uh, we could talk about this a lot more, but, but, but for me, that's my fundamental reality. My thing that I see a lot on both sides with people who have never had a doubting experience have that derision towards those that do, and people that are in the middle of a doubting experience have those derisions towards those who are not. Yeah. And I just don't know how to combat that on, on either side. And obviously, Christ is the answer to everything, but just... Um, how to work with that and helping people 
understand that just because someone's doubting doesn't mean whatever you think it means, and 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 vice versa doesn't mean we're stupid because right. we are in the church. And I, I found that a lot. It's so hard for us to get outside ourselves, right? I mean, it's it's a natural human thing for for me to think that that my experience is normative for everybody else's experience, right? So if I've never had any doubts or anything like that, then I think that's basically how other people experience God. And if they don't, they're weirdos, right? Um, or or if I'm kind of racked with doubt, I mean, it's hard for me to believe. I mean, I'm talking there about Mother Teresa, maybe the greatest Christian of our era, who went decades saying that she never heard the voice of God, right? Felt completely abandoned by God. Not right? a saint. She's a saint, right? She's a real saint. I mean, we're, we're working on it, right? I mean, she's the real deal. Right? And, um, and uh, so, so we... I, I don't have any magic answers. I mean, I try to talk about it in, in the book, available for $15.99 down the hall. Um, but but, but I, I do think it comes down to, can we, can we summon the, the, the kind of empathy for the other? Can, I mean, that's, it's a religious value, but it's a basic human value, right? Can I muster some kind of empathy to try and understand another person's experience that is different from mine? We do it in our marriages. We have to do it in our marriages or, or they'll fall apart. We do it in our families or they'll fall apart, right? Can we do it in our, in our church relationships? And oftentimes it's very difficult in families because it's not just about faith or something like that. I mean, we, we load so much into this in terms of families and church and so forth that, that when these when um, faith falls apart, oftentimes families fall apart as well. So, so it's, it's not just an intellectual thing. Right? I mean, this is visceral, it's relational, it's all these kinds of things. So it, it is really hard, it, it, but, it, but it has to be done in, in conversation. It, Mormons are very good at, at passive-aggressive, right? We've got to get past that. We, we, we've got to get past talking around one another and all the, We've got to talk to each other. Uh, we, we, just, we just have to talk to each other. I think, there, was there a hand over here earlier that we missed? No, Okay. Uh, my children, or a couple of my children, recently discovered that maybe prophets aren't always infallible. And the thing they're struggling with now is they have young children, all less than 10. At what point, I mean, as you raise children, do you ever tell them, well, maybe you don't always follow the prophet? He, he could be infallible. You probably have young children. Have yeah. you thought, at what point, as they're maturing, do you bring these things up. We've, we've got a seven-year-old and five-year-old twins, and we were reading uh, the Book of Mormon Reader the other day and read the part about Lamanites and the skin color. And we just kind of glided right through. I mean, I, we kind of looked at each other, and they're seven and five, right? Uh, but, but at some point, they're, they're not always going to be said. And maybe we should, right? Maybe we should talk about them. We, we've, we talk about various things around the dinner table and, and when things come up and so forth. But, but I do think, you know, there has to be kind of age-appropriate introduction of certain things. And there is a, and we do this in education all the time, right? You don't teach calculus to third graders, right? Unless they're really amazing third graders, right? But, but we do this, and, and we stage our secular education, and that's the most natural thing in the world, right? Our religious education should be the same. And the way that we're talking about religion to my seven- and five-year-old, I, if I'm talking to them about religion the same way in 10 years that I am now, I'm not, my, I'm not doing my job as a parent. 
I'm just not. And so I think it's going to be different for every family because every kid's going to be different, right? And some kids are going to ask those questions when they're eight, some when they're 18. I think we do have to be proactive. I think if we wait for them to ask questions, well, let's talk about the skin of blackness. And I mean, not all kids are going to do that. So I, I think we do have to be proactive about some of these things. Um, if we want to prepare them, they're going to go out. It's a big world out there. They're going to go out and encounter these things. If we, we talk about preparing our children to go out into the world, arming them with the, the armor of God and so forth, this is part of the armor of God, uh, is a robust and, and uh, mature understanding of the world, including prophets and so forth. And the scriptures do this work for us. Uh, the scriptures, again, they're not teaching about infallible prophets. So if we're reading the scriptures together, there's plenty of opportunities uh, to talk about, hey, let's talk about Jonah. He's kind of a weird guy. <laughs> one last one. Yeah. Well, this is a question. It was interesting. In, in response to that, I was once talking to Terrell Gibbons, and his comment, it was a number of years ago, I think we were just kind of starting to fall off the cliff on all of these things. And he was concerned about the fact that you know these things weren't being presented to young people. And obviously, it has to be done in an age-appropriate way. But I remember the one thing that I remember him mentioning was, why aren't we teaching children in primary about Joseph Smith looking at serious stones yeah. in a hat? He said, because they would think, Oh, cool. Instead of at 26 years old thinking, really? How weird. And you to teach it in context, they're not, you're not, you don't feel betrayed. You know this, and it's not a surprise. And gee, that's what people did at that time. And it's things, any of the things that we can teach, the earlier we can teach it in a matter of fact way as just part of it. And like you say, looking at the scriptures instead of just reading over Jonah saying, hmm, Jonah was a prophet, but he really, that wasn't his best day. You know, just those kinds of things. And I think he felt so strongly that we just need to be doing this all along the way. It needs to be part of the church education system. It needs to be part of what we're doing in our homes. We're making some progress on that with the new seminary managers and those things. I don't know that we've reached quite down as far into primary as we Hopefully we'll do. Yeah, last story. So uh, in a ward we used to live in, in Indiana, we used to have dinner almost every Sunday with these friends of ours. Uh, uh, he, he was in the bishopric, eventually became bishop. And, and we talked about this kind of stuff just around the dinner table came up because they knew I studied church history and stuff. So, so we talked about seer stones and looking in the hat. They'd never heard that before. But because we talked around the dinner table and they trusted me, we had a relationship, we could have a very intimate conversation about it. It was a safe place to talk about this and work through this for them. Well, a couple months later, the primary put on a, a thing about the Book of Mormon, and they had different nations, all about the Book of Mormon, and just out of chance, I think Providence, uh, he was assigned to the Book of Mormon translation station as, as a member of the bishopric. So what did he do? He taught primary kids about Joseph Smith looking in a hat. And this is before it was on LDS.org, right? This is before we had the, the picture of the stone. But he taught it because he, he, he knew, and we talked about it, and, and he knew he wasn't teaching anything false. So he taught it, and the kids were like, Okay, right? I mean, these kids are on like iPads and stuff like that, right? I mean, I, I mean, the other thing that I'll say is that once you believe that a carpenter walked out of a tomb on day three, a guy looking in a hat—I mean, that's that's child's play, right? I mean, so 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 once you're willing to take the leap of faith to believe in the resurrection of the risen Christ, right? Now we're, we're, in, we're in a different world now, right? We're, we're in a world of wonders. We're in a world of miracles. We're in a world where God can do his work. And so for me, it's no weirder for like Joseph to be staring at gold plates that he can't read, right? Because he doesn't speak the language and somehow translating and looking at his stuff. I mean, why is one weirder than the other? And so 
we were talking about this at, at, at dinner, Russ and I, you know, the, this secular age that we live in, and, and he was saying, why is it that it's just so much more respectable not to believe in God and all these kinds of things? Well, I think part of, uh, talked about us being a prophetic people, I think part of us being a prophetic people can say, we can be modern, we can live in the modern world, and we believe that in this modern world, God still reaches down and touches us. That's a prophetic statement uh, in, in, in this modern age, and I, I, I think it starts with Joseph Smith looking in a hat. Thank you you for listening to the Dialogue Podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.